What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Dear Flamethrowers, it's Shireen. I would like to take a minute to dedicate episode 122 to Sharon Elizabeth Tomlinson, née Biglow. She is the mother of a flamethrower and a very dear friend, Melissa Doldron. Sharon passed away on August 31st, 2019. Sharon, your support of your community, helping to inspire and support incredible human beings, and your love of the Toronto Blue Jays are just a few of the many reasons you will be so missed. Rest in power. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. Today, the gang's all here. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada, and ideologue of the toxic femininity charge. The brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. Jessica Luther, Baker, phd and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. She's in Austin, Texas. And the unsinkable whip-smart Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress in D.C. Before we start, I'd like to thank our patrons for their generous support. And just to remind all of you that you can be a flamethrower too in our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly to become an official patron of the podcast. And in exchange, you get access to special rewards. Most recently, Amira and Jessica's amazing vlog, I guess you call them, (laughs) video vlog thingy, which is amazing. But we are so grateful for your support and so happy that our flamethrowing family is growing. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the NFL, specifically the significance of player Ryan Russell coming out as bisexual. Jessica interviews Jessica Berman, the National Lacrosse League's new deputy commissioner and executive vice president of business affairs. They talk about Berman's path to becoming the highest female executive in a men's pro sports league, being a woman in a male-dominated industry, and what differentiates the National Lacrosse League from other professional leagues. And finally, we're going to have a round of What Are You Watching? One of my favorite games on Burn It All Down. Before all that, we are going to remind our flamethrowers about our Nashville event. Jessica, can you give us an update? Yeah, so we're going to be in Nashville live on Monday, September 9th at 10 a.m. at the Music City Center. It's part of the YWCA of Nashville's SHIFT conference. And then later that day, uh, so Monday, September 9th at 5.30 p.m., we are going to do a meetup inside the Omni Hotel. There's a coffee shop called Bongo Java. It's The address is 255th Avenue South. And again, it's at 5.30 p.m., We hope to see some flamethrowers in Nashville. Awesome. What are you guys most excited about? Shereen, I bet there's something you're excited about. I am very excited about Bongo Javas because it's one of the oldest roasters in Nashville. And that's our meetup. So I I did. I take take coffee very seriously. 
And I'm excited to meet flamethrowers. I cannot wait to cuddle with my co-hosts. I've missed y'all so much. And I have matching surprises again for everybody. And I just, I'm, I've never been to Tennessee before. So I need a <laughs> cowboy hat. I'm still working on that. So, because it's not cowboy hat season in Toronto. I don't know if it's ever cowboy <laughs> hat season in Toronto. So I'm... No, but there can okay. be. That's the way. Mid February, maybe. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm just really, I'm really excited, and I'm assuming it's going to be warmer because it's already cold here. And the conference, just to say, the conference looks really interesting. So I'm pretty excited to hear some of the speakers, and we've got it up all over our website, and we'll tweet it out again this week. So people should check it out. And if you're in the Nashville area, it'd be wonderful to see you. Okay, this week, Ryan Russell, a free agent in the NFL, came out as bisexual, and it was big news. Amira, can you lead us through a discussion here? Yeah, sure. So Ryan Russell has been in the NFL for about three years. He played college at Purdue. He played college ball at Purdue. Um, he was drafted by the Cowboys in 2015. After that, he's kind of been a journeyman. He played for the Bucks for two years, and then, as Brenda said, he's currently in search of a team now. But he penned a very moving article about his sexuality in which he talks about from very early on trying to compartmentalize and and shift parts of himself because he knew that there is, he understood, he received the message that there was no place for kind of any idea of softness or whatever in football. And he equated his love for poetry and reading and his bisexuality as soft. And so the thing that I really, you know, want to zone in on in, you know, some of the words that he wrote, which were really powerful. He's a wonderful writer. He said, quote, growing up, I always felt as though my existence slipped between the cracks of two worlds. Um, He talks about not identifying as like straight and hyper masculine and aggressive um and and feeling like he had to hide that part of himself to pursue a career in the NFL and in particular the kind of words that really stuck out at me he's talking about a blogger who had kind of pieced together the fact that he was seeing this guy he was in the background of an Instagram video and called him up and basically said you know be more careful but I'll I'll do a favor for you and I won't make the, I won't out you essentially and to this he says let that sink into your brain even though openly lgbtq people are thriving in every area of public life they're so invisible in pro sports that a gossip blogger is doing a favor for a bisexual football player by not disclosing that he happens to date men. Nobody should need a favor to live honestly. In nobody's world should being careful mean not being yourself. The career you choose shouldn't dictate the parts of yourself that you embrace. And it's that last line that I really want to kick off our discussion with today. The career you choose shouldn't dictate the parts of yourself that you embrace. And I think one of the things that is all over this piece is a feeling of the boundaries of football in particular being so hardened that it requires so much repression on the part of gay and bisexual or just different um, men, particularly black men that he talks about here. And that's kind of where I want to start the discussion. What were your reactions to the piece? Jessica? I thought it was beautiful. I mean, like you said, Amira, he's 
phenomenal writer. I mean, it made me cry. Like I was crying at my desk as I read through it. It's kind of wild at this point how, I mean, it was brave of him. I honestly don't know where his career will go from here. And I honestly think he's right. Like this will probably jeopardize his ability to play in the NFL moving forward, which is a really sad testament of the NFL and that organization in general, football culture in particular, should be very ashamed that that is true. But, you know, I worry for him about his career because it does sound like he really wants to play football again. And I'm just, I don't know. It's, it's something to me that when I think about other like hyper-masculine, even violent spaces that are more accepting, like that, you know, it's been quite a while now that the U.S. military, you know, there's a lot going on with transgender soldiers. But as far as, you know, something like Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it's been a long time since they put that to bed. So the fact that we still have this one, it's probably not the only one, but, you know, as far as its importance within our culture, this one space where it is still so homophobic, that's just really sad still. But I I really was taken by his piece and and how beautifully he wrote about his own experience. And I hope that we get to see him on a football field. Well, and and you have to wonder just like, how much the popularity of the sport with certain sectors of society has to do with their feeling like that's Mm. a space that they can express homophobia in a way that they don't in others. I mean, I ask myself that all the Mm. time. It's, you know, professional men's sports, incredibly gender segregated. The misogyny is all wrapped up in the homophobia. And I wonder sometimes, you know, if, if it became an inclusive space, would the same people love it as much? Right. It's like that book title, you know, the more women succeed, the more men love football. And I think you yeah. could probably amend it. <laughs> yes. Right? Exactly. No, but like yes. you can completely amend it to be like yeah. the more civil liberties, you know, gay people get, the more men love football. Like it's, yeah. it becomes the safe space, so to speak. Yeah. To yeah. turn it on its head. Right. Bam. See what I did there. Lindsay? Yeah, I think more than anything, you know, football is tied to this notion of masculinity that is toxic. Some might call that toxic masculinity, but uh, um, if I'm being succinct with my words. Um, but, you know, I thought it was really important that he came out as bisexual and open about bisexuality. We know that bi-visibility is a real, I would say, blind spot in society and especially among men. And so, you know, I thought that was was just, you know, a really important thing to acknowledge. And I think that because we are still looking for, I mean, acceptance for, you know, openly gay men in these, you know, main sports, biggest sports in the United States, you know, and football and hockey and basketball, you know, because of this, I think that the bisexuality part of this is going to get lost in the conversation. So I just want to make sure that we hold that importance about who he is. But I think that what everyone is saying is just spot on about the way we view masculinity and the way masculinity um, fuels football culture. And it's not exactly the same thing by any means. But, you know, the reaction to the thought that um, Carly Lloyd could kick a field goal in the NFL this week, I think was another example of that. Whereas all of a sudden you saw all of these people coming forward and saying, 
they were all of a sudden very concerned about the safety of football players when a woman was involved, you know, and they were all of a sudden very concerned about the safety of women when it involved a football field, you know, it was just a, a staggering thing. And I think it was a few people, this is not a unique point to me, but it really brought home the fact that it was the fact that if a woman could do this, if a woman could succeed in their space, it would so upend their notion of what football is that it was too terrifying to even be able to comprehend. And that's where all of this anger and all this dismissiveness came from. And I think that, you know, you can relate that a lot to also, you know, allowing this to be a space where bisexual and gay men can succeed. Shireen. Yeah, I uh, absolutely thought the piece was beautifully written. He, you know, talked about himself. He offered so much about himself, including loving Hemingway. Like it was just, it was really, really, really beautifully done. And he taught as he, like, I learned a lot generally and about him when he shared one of the things that was notable was that he already framed it about how he feels about the response And I could relate to that as somebody who writes something anticipating what the reaction would be. And he he said, one of the things that really, really stuck with me was, quote, if you don't know me personally, I don't take what you have to say personally, end quote. And because he's already anticipating backlash. And that made me sad at the same time, because we know that's coming. We know the reactions, the dismissal, ignoring, maybe not picking him up and for a team. And I really hope he plays like, I don't watch NFL, but I will, if he plays like there's reasons or specific people around whom I'll support it and watch it and cheer for them. He's definitely one of them. And like, I wish him above all safety and, peace moving forward and he just seems to have come to a place of relief which is quite often what we hear from people when they come out it can be their experience so I just you know I'm rooting for him and I hope that he goes somewhere that fosters and encourages his growth because like just what a beautiful beautiful young man next up Jessica interviews Jessica Berman, the National Lacrosse League's new Deputy Commissioner and Executive Vice President of Business Affairs. Hello, flamethrowers. Jessica here, and I'm joined today by another Jessica, Jessica Berman. Earlier this week, the National Lacrosse League announced that Berman will be their new Deputy Commissioner and Executive Vice President of Business Affairs. She is leaving the National Hockey League, where she's been for the last 13 years, to take this position with the NLL. And with this new position, Berman becomes the first woman to hold the title of deputy commissioner at any professional sports league in North America. She starts her new job on September 9th. Welcome to Burn It All Down, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Jessica. (laughs) So I would like to start at your beginning. How did you get into sports administration and what about it appealed to you? I decided I wanted to work in sports from the time I was in high school. I grew up in what I would consider being an athlete as a dancer and worked with the teams in my high school, including as a manager of the team and attended a lot of games as a fan and really fell in love with the concept that sports is one of the few social constructs that really bring people together from different backgrounds. And I decided in that moment that I wanted to work 
for my career in professional sports because I was really inspired by what I observed as a fan and working closely with the team in my high school. How did you get into sports administration? I went to the University of Michigan, which Mm -hmm. of course is known for its athletics and the athletic department and sought out internships, being a manager for the Michigan hockey team, Michigan football team, and Michigan baseball team. And my role working for those teams was really to work with the players, uh, to prepare them for interviews and media, to do game notes and keep statistics and really anything that the coaches or management at the university needed to help the teams to promote the, the game and the players and uh, began to seek out internships in the sport and worked in sports journalism, sports broadcasting, did some color commentating, writing for newspapers. I I really tried out kind of all different aspects of the industry, including working for a sports agent during college. And really, by process of elimination, decided that I wanted to go to law school and work on management side in labor relations. And so I went to Fordham Law School and joined Proskauer Rose, where I had the good fortune of representing and working with all of the professional leagues who retained Proskauer as outside counsel and worked closely on collective bargaining and all of the labor relations matters that the leagues were dealing with. Wow, that's fascinating. I wanted to ask about being a woman and an executive in men's sports. What has your experience been like as a woman in this position? For the most part, I have come across men who have been supportive of me and my career. And really from day one, uh, I come from a background of professionals in my family who really take work really seriously. Both my parents are still working at ages 82 and 72 full-time. And I was sort of indoctrinated in me really early that uh, you have to always put your best foot forward and you'll always hopefully be judged on your work product. And I think it's been the rare exception that I haven't experienced that and really been fortunate to, I think, grow up in a generation where there's a pivot happening in terms of women really getting opportunities and being celebrated for not just having the position, but being able to contribute a diverse perspective. And so because that timing has worked out, I've been able to really capitalize on that for my career benefit. And all of the hard work that I've done has really been able to come to fruition. I won't say it's been 100% positive. Of course, (laughs) there's been some, some bad apples along the way. But really worked hard to try to focus on the positives and the people who are supportive. And there's been so many mentors that I've had, men in particular, who have taken me under their wing and said, let me be there to support you. What can I do to help? And so I feel really fortunate that I've gotten to this point in my career to have this opportunity. Yeah. I was going to actually ask about mentors and whether or not you had any women that or mentors to you? Yeah, I've had women who have been mentors of mine along the way. A couple of people come to mind. One partner at Proskauer, uh, whose name's Kathleen McKenna, who really looked out for me as a woman. I remember when I came to her and said that I was leaving Proskauer and ultimately joining the NHL. And 
of course, she understood my aspirations to work in sports. And so she was supportive, but really wanted me to be part of the generation, the next generation of lawyers who were kind of breaking the glass ceiling for women partners at law firm, which is another industry that women are really underrepresented. Here at the NHL, I feel really fortunate to work for Kim Davis, who Mm. is a pioneer in diversity inclusion and building community through brand. Similarly, when I came to her and told her that I was leaving, I think her quote was, crying as your manager, but cheering as your mentor. And so certainly (laughs) had the opportunity to work for women, work with women who have been supportive, been my champions. But I I actually, my mom is probably Hmm. my best role model as a woman. She works full-time at 72 and I think struck the right balance between making sure that she was always owning her feminism and her, her role as a woman and prioritizing being a mom and her role in our family, but found the time, even if it was at odd hours of the night or morning or on weekends or on vacation to get her work done. And I've just done my best to try to continue that legacy. That's lovely. So I want to ask about lacrosse, obviously, because that's where you're headed. How much did you know about the National Lacrosse League before becoming interested in the position? Are you learning about lacrosse at the same time that you're learning about the NLL? Or is this something that you already knew about? So because in the last four years, my role at the NHL has changed. And I went from being a lawyer and deputy general counsel to focusing on the next generation of fans and cause and youth sports. And so in that capacity in the last four years, have really been interested in lacrosse as a sport, more from the perspective of understanding why it is one of the few team sports that has debunked the trend of decline in youth sports participation mm. in the U.S. And so I've observed it really as an outsider because a lot of the initiatives that I've been working on have been focused on growing the game of hockey at the youth level and creating an emotional connection to our game in hockey and observing the movement and the traction that lacrosse has received from communities across North America. So I would say that's the level of familiarity that I've had with the sport itself. And so when Nick and I, Nick, the commissioner of the National Lacrosse League, and I were introduced, I had a pretty, I would say, superficial level of understanding of lacrosse, but I'm going all in this year. So I'm going to have a steep learning curve and (laughs) hope to be immersed very soon. I feel like probably a lot of people listening maybe have never even heard of the National uh, Lacrosse League. And I know that there are other professional lacrosse leagues, like Major League Lacrosse and Premier Lacrosse League, but NLL is different than those two, Mm -hmm. correct? Can you explain what the NLL is? Sure. So I would say there's a couple of differentiators. Probably the, the biggest differentiator is that the National Lacrosse League has been around for 33 years. So there's a long history that exists with this league. Second is that the National Lacrosse League is the only league that plays professionally in the winter months. So the NLL is an indoor league mm-hmm. and plays mostly in NHL arenas where mm-hmm. um, it's an enclosed environment. And the game is slightly different in terms of the rules and the number of players that play and, and all those sorts of things. But essentially, I think playing in the winter months as opposed to in the summer months and that they play indoors versus outdoors are other really important differentiators. And so 
when I was doing my research on this league and the flurry of activity that exists today with lacrosse, that all of this extra attention on the sport itself from a professional perspective is a good thing for all of us right now because it demonstrates the fact that the sport has interest and room to grow and that there's a marketplace for it. And so I suspect that the NLL, which will open its season in December, will pick up some of the lift from this summer where the MLL and the PLL have been playing outdoors these past couple of months. Are there players who do both indoor and outdoor? There are. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't even realize until I was doing my research to interview you that there was indoor lacrosse. What is your position going to be as deputy commissioner and executive vice president of business affairs? Like, what will your job entail? Number one, I'll be supporting Nick and everything that he's focused on from a growth perspective. Some of his key areas of focus are expansion and expanding the footprint of the league across North America. We have two new teams coming into the league this coming season for the 1920 season, up from 11 to 13. Hmm. And I know that he's really focused on identifying new markets and new owners. So that's kind of one area of focus. Another area of focus for sure will be from a media perspective and we'll be continuing to build our relationship with Turner and VR Live. And so we'll build on that foundation to grow the visibility of the game. But I think kind of two areas that in my background that are unique are my experience in labor relations, of course. And so I'll get to know our player association better and uh, understanding how we can find commonalities and compromise for each of our interests as we begin to lay the foundation and the framework for our relationship moving forward. And then the second area is really for the last four years, I've been working so closely with all of our teams in the NHL on sharing best practices. And I expect that we'll be kind of looking at how the league communicates with its teams to ensure that they're getting the benefit of each other's strengths and working to really leverage that experience to enhance how each of the teams operate. Well, can you just, as a final thing, you have mentioned the growth in lacrosse, that it's going up instead of declining and and on the youth level. Do you know why? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons that are speculated. So I'm I'm not sure that any of this is based in hard data or research, but from what I've been told, because actually hockey is another sport that's been growing in recent years. Hmm. I think there's an interest in the the fast pace of the game. And I think that that the physicality and the pace of the game seems to jive with Gen Z and the way that they consume and engage in activities. And Hmm. so I think sports like lacrosse and hockey are seeing some of the benefits from that. I know for my kids, you know, they want to like go. You know, they spend so many hours a day sitting Mm -hmm. and playing video games that when they are doing their sports, they have a lot of pent up energy. And so I think for a sport that's fun and fast paced and physical makes them more inclined and interested in continuing to play. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Burn It All Down, Jessica Berman. Good luck in your new position with the National Lacrosse League. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. 
for the final segment of the show, I wanted to play my favorite game, What Are You Watching? Um, Burn It All Down, because sometimes I feel like I get into my own sort of sports groove and I'll be following tweets and different things, but I'm not really up on what everybody's doing. Shireen, can you start us off as like MC of the game? (laughs) Sure. Welcome to What Are You Watching? (laughs) I wanted to just start with a really profound quote from someone I look to as a thinker and a change maker. She says, I'm not a big sports fan, but I love it when they slam dunk. That is sexy. And this is from Emma Bunton of the Spice Girls. And the reason I start with this quote is just to say that sports is for all of us. It's a birthright, how you want to consume it. And some are into the U.S. Open, which is riveting, and we'll get into that. I was watching the Champs League draw. and They also announced the UEFA winners. I know there's other things happening. I've been intrigued by Raisa Leal, who is an 11-year-old Brazilian skateboarder who was participating in the extreme games in Norway. So there's there's like a lot of things. And it could be local, like there's a softball team called Sisterhood Softball who is raising money to raise water wells um, with a Muslim charity. And like there's just so much beautiful sports happening. So I will actually begin the game, if that's okay. Uh, we make up the rules, so that's fine. And I will say I was watching Reshmin Chaudhry on the Champs League draw in a room otherwise completely filled by white men. So to see this absolutely beautiful polyglot up there, brown woman nailing it, interviewing, I thought she could have given Ronaldo a lot more shade, but I guess she has to be professional, whatever that means. But I enjoyed that and it was fun. It's not the most riveting television, but I, that's what I've been kind of into these days. And I'm just really excited about sport and the fall brings the promise of it. So that's, we can start there, I guess. Yeah, that's a really good start. And Jessica, what are you watching? I bet I can guess, but tell us. Yeah, well, I would hope so. It's the only thing I'm watching. <laughs> uh, I've been watching the US Open and it's been great. It's been a great Grand Slam. Uh, you can't always say that. And so this one has been very fun. I was very happy to see Gael Monfils make it into week two. He had to go five sets, but he still did it. And I just love seeing him. Um, and then I am enjoying this Russian named Medvedev, who's number five. He's become this like kind of evil heel of the tournament. Um, he's been a real jerk. And he flicked off the chair umpire the other night. And then the crowd started booing him. And then he thanked the crowd for booing him, (laughs) like that they inspired him. And I just, I don't know. I love heels in sports. But then, of course, it's all about the women. The women's side of this tournament has been amazing. Last night, so we're recording Sunday morning. Last night was the Osaka, Naomi Osaka Coco Golf match, which Naomi handled, you know, it was, she handily won that. But there was that beautiful moment afterwards that I didn't actually watch live. I had turned it off before then. But just a beautiful moment between these two young women of color on the biggest stage in the sport. But I did want to mention, so we're we're moving into the round of 16. By the time you guys hear this, they will have played on Monday. But there's a lot of seated matchups. Everyone is seated going into the round of 16, except for two people. And I just wanted to mention them. 
Taylor Townsend. They're both American. Taylor Townsend. Ooh, Taylor! Love Taylor Townsend. She's going to play Bianca Andreescu next. It's Andreescu's U.S. Open debut. But this is Taylor Townsend's second week in a major in singles ever. She made the round of 32 back in 2014 at Roland Garros. But she was the top junior in the world in 2012 when the USTA shat all over her for they like pulled her funding citing that she was too fat basically and she you know really went through a lot of shit uh her coach a couple years ago told the new york times that she was broken in every way and she has just struggled a lot but she has been spectacular in this tournament she has made the second week she beat Halep by coming to the net 106 times which i can't express enough like how weird that is in tennis she came to the net 106 times in that match 64 times in the third set alone and she cried on court afterwards talking about what a big deal this was to her and so it's very exciting to see her the other person from uh that's unseated in the round of 16 is christiane who's actually from flushing meadows where the tournament is she's 27 these three wins that she's had at the u.s open are her first and only grand slam wins in her entire career uh, she qualified for the 2008 U.S. Open when she was 16, but then her parents really pushed her to get an education. So she left the, tur- the tour and went to Stanford and studied science and came back in 2014 after graduating to play tennis. Her parents made her a deal where they'd pay for three years and then they'd stop. If she couldn't make it on her own, then she had to stop playing tennis. <laughs> and so she's come close to retiring, but now she's in the round of 16 at the U.S. Open, which will pay her bills for quite a while. So it's those two, and then I could just I could keep going, but I'm just very <laughs> excited about the second week in the tournament on the women's side. <laughs> okay, Lindsay, you're up. Uh, yes, I agree with all of that. <laughs> uh, a second, <laughs> second that you know, I just saw the the Osaka golf a moment after the match where Coco Golf is crying, and Naomi Osaka has the presence of mind to say join me for this post-match interview and Coco doesn't want to do it because she knows she'll cry. And Naomi knows that Naomi's, you know, just 21, but has been in enough of these moments that she knows that it's okay. If Coco cries that the crowd needs to see her and that she needs to be able to experience the crowd's love for her in that moment. For me, you know, after the match, Naomi was talking about how, you know, so many people don't see, they don't go to read the press, the transcripts from the post-match press conferences, you know, they don't read the articles that come out afterwards. So Naomi just had this awareness that Coco needed to be able to have that moment with the crowd because that wouldn't be replicated in any other setting. And, you know, Coco really didn't want to at the time. She didn't want to speak and she didn't want people to hear her crying. But I just thought it was just so beautiful of Naomi Osaka to have that awareness. And already Coco has been on, you know, Instagram and saying, you know, thank you for this moment. It is a moment that I will never, ever forget and, you know, always treasure. So, you know, already Coco was realizing, I think that Naomi was right, you know, that, you know, as much as we look at the on the court stuff and say, this is part of the Williams sister's legacy, I think that that off court moment of support, that is also a part of the Williams sister's legacy. And we need to lift that up as well, because I don't think they get enough credit for for that. 
I've also been watching a lot of WNBA, which I know will not surprise anyone. Um, there was another great moment just um, on Saturday night, which once again is the night before recording this. The Las Vegas Aces and the Los Angeles Sparks were playing, and the uh, Kelsey Plum, who was the number one overall pick in the 2018 draft or 2017 draft, I think, and you know has struggled a little bit in the past few years. She went off for 20 points in the fourth quarter, and the Aces came from behind to get this really important win, and she was crying in the post-match interview on court, and Asia Wilson, her teammate, was comforting her and just so excited for her to have this moment, and it was just another moment where it was just women cheering on women and their accomplishments, you know? And I know it's a little bit different in a team sport because it's a little bit more expected, but it was still just beautiful, and I think it's just so easy for us to forget, like, how hard these players work, you know, how hard, even though we haven't been seeing a Taylor Townsend, how hard she's been working behind the scenes. Even though Kelsey Plum hasn't been making the shots, that doesn't mean she hasn't been putting in the work every day and feeling that pressure because the expectation was that a Kelsey Plum would have these games on a daily basis. The expectation was Taylor Townsend would be in the second week of the U.S. Open on a regular basis. So I think that those two moments, both of those interviews, and they happened within a few hours ago, are going to really stick with me for a long time. Women's sports are just more better. As Jen Doyle always says, (laughs) Jennifer Doyle, friend of the show, always says women's sports are more. And it does feel like that lately. Amira, what what you been watching? Yeah, um, I want to go back to the US Open. (laughs) I am so moved by watching these Black women on the court on the weekend that they finally unveil a statue of Althea Gibson. I barely have words to talk about how, how moving it is for me. So many people who randomly were at the U.S. Omen text me pictures of the this statue of Althea Gibson. So for folks who don't know, Althea Gibson uh, is a barrier breaker in, in tennis. She played at FAMU and the ATA, which was the segregated um, tennis clubs that Black people started when people were, you know, not letting them into the segregated, the white clubs. So the ATA was really the spot where a lot of Black people got their start in tennis. And Gibson was an ATA phenomenon. And then at the age of 23, she got pulled up to the U.S. Nationals. And in the 50s, she really started to shine. She won 11 majors, and she was the first Black player to win the French Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Nationals. And then little, not many people know, she actually, after she retired from tennis, went on to compete on the circuit in golf. And she was uh, the original two-sport athlete, if you will. And so while players that you see this weekend compete on Arthur Ashe, there actually isn't a kind of equivalent, you know, court uh, dedication to Althea Gibson. The reasons are certainly gendered. And so this this statue of Althea Gibson is certainly long overdue. And if you want to know more about this particular relationship, we did a documentary. I was in a documentary about it on CBS Sport Network about Arthur and Althea. But in particular, and perhaps in the words of Taylor Townsend, who said, yeah, the Wilman sisters are certainly pioneers, but I was wearing Althea Gibson shirt this week and she was like the OG. And And for that to be true and for the statue to be unveiled this weekend and to see Coco and Naomi and to see Naomi say, we both made it. One of the kind of hidden 
languages that she's speaking there is like they both made it in this lily white ass game and when she spoke to her parents about that behind the scenes like i i I really felt that when taylor turns to her box and says let's eat after winning her match like i really felt that and i think that there's just this it's I'm so glad to be watching this particular tournament right now with these women. So that's mainly what I'm watching, but also college sports have started and I've been supporting my students. So I've been going to a lot of Penn State games. I actually went to my first Penn State football game yesterday. It was a lot, but also really (laughs) infectious. The energy was really interesting. And I'd seen women's soccer and women's volleyball was that same night. And I have to say the crowds and the the energy at all of these spaces are just really captivating. And that's something that I um, was unexpected. Like I, as much as we just talked and we just talked in the last segment about how kind of toxic and, and masculine and, and, boarded up football is my experience at beaver field was actually really i don't know even the word for it like i was unexpectedly brought into something that felt very community and like i was sickened by (laughs) the fact that 104,000 people were watching like my students play like the farce of it was really laid bare like these are athletes they're not in school to you know learn but at the same time that same energy being then gone to the women's sports and when the women's basketball new coach put up their video on the board and everybody went crazy like that those moments were like really significant so i'm i'm excited for college sports this year as well okay great that's that's super awesome interesting okay now there's me so i'm watching something that i bet that none of my co-hosts are watching, which is the Copa Libertadores, which is the South American Club Championship. And the quarterfinals just finished up. It's a like long haul of a club soccer tournament. And basically what that means is that there's 38 clubs that compete over a six to eight month period. There's like first stage, second stage, knockout stage. And what that means is it's sort of like if you took whoever wins the Super Bowl in the U.S. and then they played whoever won the Super Bowl in the rest of the region, like who plays in Mexico and who plays in Canada. So it's actually, sorry to say, but way cooler than just a national sport, in my opinion, because it's like watching your team, like let's say it was a mirror watching the Patriots playing you know, whatever equivalent that is in another country. And it's really awesome. And there's two legs. So you play because the fans make such a difference in the opinion of the players in the game, because they're so passionate. And they're so all over it, they have to have two legs. So one at one's home stadium and the other at the other club's home stadium. And anyway, it was really exciting this quarterfinals and it's really exciting to see South American soccer. If you wonder to yourself why there are 800 Brazilians that are exported every year to play across the world, there's a reason. And it's not just like they're born like that. And it's not because soccer is something that's like cool for poor people. And so poor countries do it. It's because they're freaking amazing. And the fans demand it. They demand a different kind of play. And, and there is that sort of back and forth relationship between the fans and the players. And it's so exciting. So now the quarterfinals are over, meaning the semifinals are going to take place on October 1st. 
Not surprisingly, two teams from Argentina and two teams from Brazil. That's often the way it shakes down. So on October 1st, we have Boca Juniors and River Plate, the super classic, amazing, you can't even believe it. I know, I know. But it's like, of course we do. You know, because it's it's just got to stay, it's it's got to stay lit. And then Flamengo and Gremio, there was a big surprise with for me when Gremio beat Palmeiras, which is a traditional sort of favorite. So it was it was really nice to, to see someone new, though it would have been great to have the Quito team, LDU Quito, who made it to the quarterfinals from Ecuador, but did not squeak by. So anyway, the skill, the intensity of fan following, if you've watched the commercialized European football, they're trying to remake South American football that way. Watch it before it ends up like the Premier League. Seriously. I mean, you know, not that there's nothing good about the Premier League, but watch it before it gets quite so commercialized in any case. Shireen, you want to you wanna end the game, close out the game? Well, I'm just going to announce the winner, and the winner is all of us. Yes! Yay! We all win <laughs> from this. I love sports. I love hearing you all talk about sports and what it brings to your life. And and it's just, it enriches, it inspires, it can connect in, in magnificent ways. Pay the athletes, especially, you know, that's one <laughs> thing I'm getting. But I just really, really love hearing about it. And again, we are all winners. Now it's time to take all the things in sports that have made us angry and metaphorically put them on a giant bonfire called the burn pile. Jessica, can you start us off? Yeah, of course. Uh, So I know that the NCAA (laughs) is easy to pick on, but it's own damn fault. So earlier this week, the NCAA denied Brock Hoffman's appeal to waive having to sit out a year after transferring between football programs. He was playing for Coastal Carolina when he decided to transfer to Virginia Tech because Tech is much closer to his home. Uh, His mother had a non-cancerous brain tumor removed, and he wanted to be able to travel home more easily from school. The NCAA denied his waiver in April, and he appealed. According to the Roanoke Times, quote, The Hoffman family was asked to provide more documentation about Stephanie, his mother's illness, and living situation. One of the factors that NCAA cited in the spring for denying the claim was that Stephanie's condition was improving. The reasoning stunned Hoffman's family since they had provided documentation that she was still suffering from facial paralysis, hearing loss, and impaired eyesight. According to the Times, His mother got letters from four different doctors and gave them to the NCAA. The NCAA responded by, and I'm not lying here, asking why, if things were difficult for her, didn't she retire from her teaching job? Hoffman's father told the Times, quote, We have almost a million dollars of medical bills. She's a teacher and doesn't have enough years to get full pay from her pension. We simply couldn't afford it. His family then turned over financial statements to the NCAA, documents from their insurance company to the NCAA, and still their appeal was denied. Brockman can't play football again until the 2020 season. This is all so cold and heartless, and that's not surprising coming from the NCAA, which looks at student athletes simultaneously as children to be parented. The NCAA is nothing if not paternalistic, and also as cash cows. Hoffman's mom can't retire because she can't afford it while her son plays for a big money team under the umbrella of an organization raking it in on the backs of these players. On top of that, the NCAA makes it really hard to transfer schools without significant punishment to students. 
In fact, over the summer, and part of the reason the NCAA denied Brockman's appeal is that the NCAA implemented a stricter standard for transferring if your family member is ill. An illness in the family, quote, must occur within or immediately after the academic year. Long-term consequences or long-term healing be damned. The NCAA does not care. We wish the Brockman family well. The NCAA, though, we're throwing on the burn pile. Burn. 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 <laughs> Mira. This week, I had no shortage of things to burn. And so, one, I proposed our earlier conversation about Ryan Russell. Um, Larry Johnson took to Twitter with his stupid thoughts <laughs> to rail against the, quote, effeminate agenda going on amongst the NBA and NFL elite. Where in which he ascertains that there's high-ranking masons and handlers trying to indoctrinate the heterosexual sports world to go after the buying power of the LGBTQ community, which he gets right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like he, he's up on the acronyms. Is my point. <laughs> and then, <laughs> the NBA. It's interesting because he's like this kind of black conspiracy theorist where like hits like points that are like completely assailable, but like then wraps then like goes left. So for instance, the NBA is getting soft because everyone's a three point shooter and they have a Vogue fashion show now walking to the locker room in the NFL. Obviously, Michael Sam was planned. I don't know who by who, but planned by the Masons apparently. <laughs> and then that commercial of of the people who retired and started a cupcake business is not happy about that. And then he says October is LGBTQ History Month, and they wear pink that month. They want you to think it's breast cancer, but they show you that they don't care much about women. Look at the treatment of domestic violence issues. And this is where I'm like, yes, but also not your conclusion. <laughs> So anyways, I really did want to burn that. And I also really wanted to freaking burn the Howard Maryland game that was 79-0 and really revealed this kind of what happens when you pay, you know, Howard made $3,000 off of $300,000 off of taking that beat down, which is great for school officials who pad their pockets with it. But I really don't think it's worth the humiliation of the boys on the field. But really, both of those things were worthy of burning. But can I tell you what's like actually making me mad right now is that the LeBron James took out a freaking trademark on taco tuesday <laughs> what? Burn. what he took out a trademark on taco <laughs> tuesday like that? he invented the motherfucking phrase and if you look at the trademark filing it's so that they can have a taco tuesday podcast because what we need is more men talking on podcasts I, that's what i want to burn quite honestly just burn it all Mexican burn it all food. down Boo. yes burn, burn it burn it it's already on fire y'all all right Lindsay. All right. Well, since Amir did too, I just want to add that, or three, or whatever. I need to add that after that 79 to nothing beatdown, Sports Illustrated tweeted that (laughs) they said uh, Maryland beat uh, Howard 79 to nothing, and 79 was the number that Jordan McNair wore, and he died last year. Jordan McNair is a football player that 
for Maryland that only died because of Maryland's, uh, the incompetence of Maryland football coaches and trainers for not recognizing heat stroke. That's not a sentimental moment. Right. Like, what even is that tweet? Like, it makes no sense. Football actually killed him. Like, he didn't didn't die from cancer or something off the football field. He died from football, so football doesn't get to be the tribute for him. Okay. My actual burn is Michigan State because it's been a while. So late on Monday night, Michigan State's lawyers filed a 100-page motion accompanied by 900 pages of exhibits seeking to dismiss 37 lawsuits representing more than 100 Nassar survivors. The Detroit Free Press um, reported this. The motion argued that while Nassar deserves to be punished for his crimes, Michigan State is not in any way liable. The quote is, although Nassar's actions were repugnant and merit the heavy criminal penalties imposed upon him, the law does not support plaintiff's attempts to hold MSU defendants liable for its wrongs. This all happened this in the same two weeks that we found out that one of the Nassar enablers is still on the Michigan State pay- pay- payroll. He was uh, told about Nassar's abuse and did not report it. He is a trainer for the football team, and he actually is facing sexual assault and domestic violence charges of his own, but he is still on paid leave. (laughs) So uh, still getting the paycheck. Um, This also came the same time, the same week that Tom Izzo showed up at a sexual assault trial of a former basketball player who is being accused of sexual assault. So this is the first time that um, Tom Izzo has made it to a courtroom to support any (laughs) body. And it was somebody being accused of sexual assault and also a very He was acquitted, but there's a very graphic video that is disturbing. But also this week, a lawsuit got to go forward um, for a woman who is suing Michigan State for not taking seriously her claims that basketball players had assaulted her. And the judge uh, dismissed Michigan State's motion to dismiss. And so that case can go forward because the judge is saying there's a lot of evidence that supports the fact that it's plausible that Michigan State uh, treated sexual assault by athletes very, very differently than it did in other instances. So Michigan State, we haven't talked about you for a while, but we needed to bring you back onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Shireen. I do want to thank Lindsay for offering me this burn. And this is super bizarre, but also ironic (laughs) in the way that Virginia Flames football, and they're already setting themselves up to be burned, actually, by calling themselves the Flames. Hugh Freeze is the new coach. He's a former coach of Ole Miss. He was debuting his coaching career with with Liberty from a hospital bed. He was hospitalized for a herniated disc but decided that that clipboard and that power was too much for him to let go of to one of the many other staff members. So he was going to coach from a hospital bed. We understand, you know, the willingness to be with your team, but when you're lying in a hospital bed, immovable, I think people will understand that maybe you should pass the mic, pass the clipboard just for that they ended up losing to Syracuse Orange 24 nothing, 
And I just think this idea of holding so tightly to this kind of power is dangerous. It's weird. And it's not necessary. It's like, so weird. it's so, I just, I, I, I don't understand. And I don't want, I don't want to understand. But I had a pretty <laughs> good week. And in all the dumbfounding things, like, I'm just baffled by this whole thing. Coaching takes a lot of emotional, psychological, and physical stress. So you know what, Coach Freeze? Focus on your, like, hospitalization and recovery. <laughs> Let those – and I say this as someone with no NCA football coaching experience, admittedly. But I do also want to say that, you know, you know, I'm kind of really close to my back. And if I was hospitalized – and I would give that my back that attention that it needs. I also would love to have a conversation with the doctors who permitted this because I just, I don't, I don't know. Anyways, I want to burn all of that, that incessant, ridiculous desire to keep clutching and his, you know, sideline interviews, I guess bedside line <laughs> interviews <laughs> were like even even more <laughs> weird for me and I just remember being like what is happening so and it's Liberty it's, it's not like it's Alabama I'm so baffled but it's Liberty freaking it's, university it's, not, I, they, I wheeled, had, they wheeled the hospital bed into the coaches and you know in, in addition when I, I, I'm not even familiar with this team so when I googled Liberty to find out more it just kept giving me the WNBA which is the only like happy side of this whole thing but my point is, I was just, I don't know. Anyways, so to the, the coach of Virginia Flames football, metaphorically putting you, I wish you the best in your recovery, but not like this. Burn it down. <laughs> and But first, we'll put this in the show notes. Somebody put a, a clip of uh, one, the assistant coach, who I guess was on the field doing the calls or something. At the end of the game, he's like when they're running to midfield and they usually do the coach's handshake, he points up <laughs> to Hugh Freeze. <laughs> and, and, and Hugh Freeze waves back and somebody's put this in slow motion and put it to, will you remember me? <laughs> Oh my god! Oh, wow. It's the funniest oh, wow. thing I've, I've ever seen. Oh god! Okay, can I get a burn? Yep. Burn. burn. <laughs> All right. Whew. Mine is less comical, so I almost feel bad going last and bringing the entire mood down because I am going to burn the racism that is so generalized in global football. And so it's just a scourge on the game. And this week it's Walter Centeno. You are on my burn pile and just barely metaphorically a coach for Saprisa who racially abused player Yosimar Pemberton, a player for Limon FC. These are both in, both in Costa Rica, um, both clubs. And basically what kills me, what kills me is the response and the propensity to say that the use of the word negro can somehow be misinterpreted by people and that it's cultural the way it's being used and it can even be used as a loving term and all of that bullshit all of it 
actually ignores what any Spanish speaker knows, what anyone who doesn't even speak Spanish and watches the video of him yelling at the player it's just it's it's absolutely apparent it's the same thing we saw with Luis Suarez and the total manipulation of something that is obvious just to defend racism and we've seen some really great things happening with FIFA's new rules this week like for the first time a match in Brazil was stopped because of homophobia that's the same general umbrella you that is used for for racism as well. The game in Costa Rica also should have been stopped. We need to see all these games being stopped when there's these incidents of racism, homophobia, and gender violence. So I, I want to throw on the burn pile the ways in which people try to defend their racism by manipulating basic language. <laughs> burn. 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 Okay, after all that burning, it's time to celebrate some amazing accomplishments with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. Before we do, we'd like to acknowledge two painful moments in sports this week. Uh, Bayad's thoughts and sympathies are with the family of Luis Enrique, former coach of Barcelona, whose nine-year-old daughter lost her battle with cancer this week. Rest in power, Zanita. We also want to offer our condolences to the family and community of racer and TV personality Jesse Combs, who died while attempting to beat her own land speed record in a 52,000 horsepower jet-powered car. Combs was known as the fastest woman on four wheels after breaking the 398 miles per hour record in that same North American Eagle Supersonic Speed Challenge in 2013. So for honorable mentions this week, we have the Mexican women's baseball team. The national team is going to the 2020 Worlds for the first time. Lucy Bronze, UEFA Player of the Year and the first defender to win this award. Canadian paddler Nolana Neubauer of the Dragon Boat Premier Mixed and Premier Women's Teams brought home three gold medals and one bronze alongside the Women's Cup awarded to the top-ranked team in the world. The team broke the world record in the women's 200-meter race, becoming the first female team to break the 42nd mark. And can I get a drum roll, please? (laughs) Or guppy sounds. That's okay. Juniper Eastwood, the first out cross-country Division I r- runner in the NCAA. She is a junior at the University of Montana and is starting her season. Congratulations to the very brave and very talented Juniper Eastwood. All right. Since the world's on fire, literally and figuratively, Let's talk about what's good in our week. Lindsay. I mean, we're going to uh, Nashville. (laughs) So (laughs) that is just, you know, that is my beacon at the end of a long, long uh, stretch. That's all I've got. I also, okay, I need to go back and and add on to my burn because I think this makes it even, or or add on to something I said earlier because I think this makes it even better. It wasn't the Liberty head coach that was pointing, or Liberty assistant coach that was pointing up at Hugh Freeze in the hospital bed. It was a Syracuse coach. So it was like their post-game handshake, (laughs) except it was pointing up to him in the hospital bed. (laughs) Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So that is just 
it's just you know that that is what's good because it is just so ridiculous <laughs> it is just bringing me a lot of joy wow. right now <laughs> Usually men being ridiculous makes us mad. Yeah. But in this case, it makes us a little mad, but also, you know. I mean, it's God, the definitely burn power worthy. It's definitely burn power worthy, but it's also hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, what about you? Yeah, well, Nashville's the top of my list. I'm so excited. As you heard earlier in the show, I'm just thrilled about the U.S. Open. And then I made a blueberry pie the other day. The crust didn't work out so well and need to work on that. But it was such an amazing recipe because you only you cook the pie crust all the way. And then you do a quarter of the blueberries on the stovetop with the sugar and cornstarch and, and, you know, they break apart and, and then you take them off the burner and you mix the rest of the blueberries in. And you pour that into the pie crust. And then you just leave it on the counter for a couple hours and the cornstarch puts it all together. And so, so many of the blueberries are just full blueberries. It is so good. So I'm going to have to make another one and work on my pie crust. It's a good excuse. So that's, that was good over the last couple of days. <laughs> cool. Amira. Yeah. So Nashville, which a uh, little known fact is where I got my escape room start while I was doing research there many of many years. I'm so I'm so excited to see all of you guys. So there's that school started for the kids and I'm happy to report the first week went really well. Zachary loves preschool. Jackson is thriving in first grade, which is a plot twist we did not see coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I just have to say. And Mari loves middle school. I'm whispering in case she hears me. Cause then she'll of course say it's not cool. But she gets off the bus every day. Like that was the best day. And she's a black woman who's also a Patriots fan for her math and science class. And she's just like, I love math and science oh, now. That's awesome. So whatever you're doing, Jocelyn Mitchell, keep doing it. And so it was a successful house. Oh, and Zachary's potty trained. So, you know, oh, wow. I'm done with diapers. I'm done. Yay, no more. I'm done. Good. Hell yes. No more pull ups. I'm just feeling like super mom ish. So, that is not really. I'm feeling like my baby's growing up and it makes me really sad. But, oh, and I have a new book out. So, you know, I love the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. And so, Stig Larson, you know, died before his trilogy was published, but this dude, David Lancon, says kind of like run with the story. I don't like them as much, but I still think they're better than most books. Um, and also, I love the protagonists who are still the same. So, that came out Tuesday. So, I'm, I'm mostly just like laying around listening to my book and pretending I can speak Swedish. So, that's my, <laughs> that's good. I, I went all over Stockholm pretending I spoke Swedish. It was hilarious. Um, <laughs> It turns out the Midwestern hay is very useful. I am <laughs> I am so super excited about Nashville. I don't have a cowboy hat and I don't want to let anyone down. So I will look at the airport. I promise if that's something people feel is important. I'm so excited to see all of you. Also, back to school is also, I mean, it's mixed bag, but it is a good bag. I love going school supply shopping. I hate going clothes shopping, but I love going school supply shopping. And um, this year, because they're all in higher grades, it's like more and more and more intense and expensive, but it's also awesome. So I got like, I got, this is so funny. Okay. My kids got some really amazing binders, (laughs) but I do love school supply (laughs) shopping. Shireen? 
I have a couple of things. First and foremost, Nashville. I'm really excited, like I said, to see my co-hosts. I love my co-hosts very much. I am really excited about back to school in Canada. We start after Labor Day. So my kids' first day will be on Tuesday. I did want to say this because I forgot last week. Jihad got her driver's license. And this is really important because then I don't have to haul ass to take her to soccer all the time. And it's 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 great. It's liberating, but it's also really like I wasn't even ready. She got her license. And then that night she's like, okay, I'm taking the car and going to practice. And I wasn't emotionally ready for that because for like, how old is she? 17 for 12 years. I've been shuttling her and then reminding her that I've been shuttling her to practice to give her that guilt. But now I can't do that anymore. So I'm sort of like, whoa, (laughs) what? What what do I threaten you with that I do this for you and you don't care? Like it's just I'm a st- I don't know what to do. You'll so, find something, Shereen. Uh, I, I, I know. Thank you. <laughs> the other thing that I've been doing is I've been binge watching Brooklyn Nine Nine in preparation for the conference because Terry Crews is actually the keynote speaker, and I did not. I hadn't committed to watching the show and I'm absolutely loving this. My eldest son safe was like, mama, you need to watch the show. You're like Gina, you really need to watch the show. But I didn't know that I would love it this much. Cause y'all know that I'm very committed to law and order. And I didn't want law and order to feel like I was cheating. And then Andre Brower used to be in Homicide Life on the Street, which had crossovers, and then it's all coming together. So, Dick Wolf, I still respect your show. You know I'm your fan. But this is hilarious. Like, I just, I'm having so much fun with this show. So, (laughs) I'm laughing a lot. So, thank you to whoever's Netflix account I'm using. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Though we're done for now, we remind you, you can burn all day and all night with our fabulous array of merchandise. Also, Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate all your reviews and feedback, and except if they're bad, don't write anything. Just kidding. Please do subscribe. I'm a little kidding. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. And you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find previous episodes, transcripts, and links to our Patreon. We would, again, appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show. It does help us do the work that we love to do and help us keep on burning what needs to be burned. I'm Brenda Elsie. On behalf of the whole crew here, Amira Rose Davis, Shereen Ahmed, Lindsay Gibbs, and Jessica Luther, burn on and not out. Burn on, 